we have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. In 1980, when the Iran-Iraq war started, Saddam Hussein was an insignificant figure. By the time the war had ended in 1988, he remained insignificant. However, during those years, he caused the deaths of approximately 260,000 Iranians and at least 13,000 of his own people. Surprisingly, the American press paid little attention to him and portrayed him just as another Middle Eastern dictator, rather than the Hitler figure he would later become. The lack of media coverage allowed Saddam Hussein to commit the worst atrocities in the 80s, without much scrutiny. The pattern of downplaying Hussein's actions set the stage for the media's collusion with the government during the 1991 Gulf War. One major failure of the press during the time was its minimal coverage of the Halabja massacre in March 1988. Saddam Hussein carried out a chemical attack on the village, resulting in the death of over 4,000 civilians. While the news of this brutal genocide did reach the American media, and it did spark an outrage, the coverage was not thorough, nor was it accurate. The Reagan administration complicated the story by suggesting that Iran may have also used chemical weapons, just shifting the blame away from Iraq. Despite lacking evidence, reporters quoting anonymous government officials spread these unfounded claims. This early example reveals the press's eventual reliance on and confidence in the government's narrative, which would become more pronounced during the Gulf War. Furthermore, the media failed to investigate or validate the accusations of chemical warfare between Iraq and Iran, resorting to a he said, she said approach. Consequently, the massacre faded from public memory as reporters moved on to other stories. The Reagan's administration's deliberate manipulation of information played a significant role in burying the story, reducing a human rights catastrophe to a mere consequence of war. U.S. intelligence agencies, including the CIA, were aware of Iraq's use of chemical weapons against Iran in 1983. And from 1987, the U.S. government provided detailed intelligence to the Iraqi regime about Iranian combat units. This level of cooperation made the U.S. complicit in Saddam Hussein's inhumane and illegal use of chemical weapons. Despite this complicity in genocide, subsequent U.S. administration used the massacre as evidence of Saddam Hussein's extreme evil. The perception of Saddam Hussein that persists today as a ruthless sadist, a brutal dictator, an unhinged madman, the sponsor of terrorism, was meticulously crafted during the lead-up to the Gulf War of 1991. The construction resulted from a combination of deliberate self-demonization, government propaganda, sensationalized media landscape, and following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989, the United States had no longer a prominent superpower rival to focus its military attention on. This coincided with Saddam Hussein's needless aggression and the build-up to the invasion of Kuwait on August 2, 1990, aligning with President Bush's apparent enthusiasm for war. This resulted in, in politically changed climate, encouraged the media to amplify the baseless and spectacular narrative provided by the government. In 1989, the Iraq seeker police detained an observer journalist named Farzad Bazoft at the Baghdad airport. Six months later, the Iranian-born British journalist was put on trial in Baghdad and falsely convicted of being an Israeli spy ultimately facing execution ordered by Saddam. This sparked international outrage. Western media, including that of the United States, responded with anti-Hussein coverage, evident in the column headlining him as the butcher of Baghdad. While Hussein's conflicts with his neighboring countries like Iran could always be dismissed by the American public as foreign disputes, his execution of a European journalist and later holding the American and British hostages made him a villain to the Americans. 
And by the time the Bush administration began vilifying Saddam Hussein through relentless propaganda, the public was primed to accept it. Indeed, they embraced wholeheartedly. Between Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in, 19- in August 1990 and the onset of Operation Desert Storm in January 1991, President Bush launched an all-out comp- campaign to portray Saddam Hussein nothing short of Hitler, the Hitler of the Arab world, if not the world at large. He claimed that Hussein's troop committed outrageous acts of barbarism that even Adolf Hitler would never commit and asserted that Saddam Hussein had surpassed Hitler in sheer brutality. Various government officials from state representative Newt Gingrich to the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Claiborne Pell, echoed these Hitler sentiments. Rather than challenging these Hitler comparisons, the U.S. media ate it up and propagated them. A study by the Gallian Foundation revealed that between August 1, 1990 and February 28, 1991, the U.S. print media likened Saddam Hussein to Hitler a staggering 1,035 times. The New Republic even altered the Time magazine cover image of the Iraqi leader, shortening his mustache. Uh, journalists not only embraced the notion that Hassan was akin to Hitler, but also applauded President Bush for having the courage to confront such adversary. The dramatic shift in the public perception of Saddam was so swift and complete that Washington Post columnist remarked, in just one week after the Iraqi dictator invaded Kuwait, uh, Saddam Hassan was transformed from a dictator unknown to to most Americans with whom the United States had aligned with to the most monstrous figure the world has ever known. The media's coverage of Saddam Hussein became highly personalized. Instead of focusing on Iraq and the Middle East economic, sociopolitical, and geostrategic uh, complexities, they focused on his character traits, reducing the war against Iraq to a, a war against Saddam himself. As a result, the Bush administration's anti-Hussein rhetoric, legitimacy, and influence. On today's episode of A Conversation Before the World Ends, And in part three of the Iraq war saga, we'll be looking at the first Gulf War, America and Iraq's first dance, and what came of it. And we'll be talking about this third world tyrant that became America's top heel throughout the 90s. Okay, guys, and welcome to today's episode. I'm your host, Kareem. I already did the intro. Okay, yeah, we're redoing it because there was noise. And I'm Eamon. And welcome to today's episode. So, Aim, uh, this episode is a bit delayed because um, lately we've had so much things happening in our personal lives. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Are you just making assumptions about my personal life? Anyways, this so podcast made me lose my job. I lost my <laughs> wife. My wife, she took the kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we're on part three of the Iraq war saga. And what was supposed to be in part two, can you stop breathing? <laughs> you see, <laughs> no, you see, see how it gets, Nora? <laughs> Do you see how it gets? I can't even breathe. I can now eat. you see <laughs> okay i'm sorry i'm it's sorry breathing heavy man <laughs> what am i supposed to do okay you turn you turned off the ac and I, man. it's on here you've changed the fan of it no it's full fan here 
Can you feel it? Okay, I won't breathe. Okay, so where were we? Which was supposed to be part two, but like I said, it got a bit too uh, too long. So we had to divide this one into two parts. So you have a problem with series extending past how long they should be? I don't know. What Interesting. <laughs> Why is there a joke about that? No. You think John Wick 4 was too much? <laughs> No, seriously. What was supposed to be a two-part series, look, organically turned into a four-part series. Okay, That's the beauty of... But there's a difference. We know where this is ending. We know where John Wick is ending. No, we don't. Yes, we do, and no spoilers. Okay. Look, John Wick 3 and 4 is technically just a cash grab. We both know that. And that of 4, <laughs> part, three, cash- <laughs> part 3 and 4 is your cash grab. <laughs> you realize you could milk the series. Yeah, yeah. It's actually getting a lot of downloads, yeah. surprisingly. <laughs> Yeah, this is my cash grab. Anyways, so part three, we focus on the first Gulf War. And then we'll focus on Iraq in the 90s all the way up to 9-11. And then we'll continue from there on part four, 9-11, the Iraq, Iraq War. Second. Do we cover uh, like the love fever and uh, accidental birth child of the Gulf War? <laughs> if you want to bring it up, yeah, we yeah. can talk about the... Okay. The love fever of the first Gulf War in the Middle East, yeah. Yeah, King is a product of the Gulf, <laughs> of the Gulf War. You know, interestingly, uh, March 3rd, there was an event that happened. Oh, yeah? Yeah, 91? Yeah. 91. Oh, shit. Yeah, so we'll talk about that then. Mm-hmm. I was born, guys. So where we stopped off was Saddam Hussein emerged as the apparent victor of the Iran-Iraq War, right? Because he brought Iran to the table. And they agreed to have a ceasefire. Yep. Okay. So with Saddam emerging as the apparent victor of war, his whole focus was on capitalizing the victory for his own benefit, right? Despite the country's near bankruptcy, devastated infrastructure, exhausted population, Saddam wasted no time in erecting a grand symbol of his triumph in Baghdad, a monument featuring cross swords held by a colossal bronze fists set in concrete. These fists modeled Saddam's own. Uh, throughout the war, Saddam's propaganda machine had tirelessly compared him to the heroic figures of the past. Now, in the war's aftermath, he sought to honor those revered ancestors by conducting elaborate burial ceremonies for the remains of Babylonian kings and constructing new tombs on their graves. He initiated, sorry, a massive reconstruction project at the ancient site of Babylon. However, despite Saddam's attempt to project this triumph, the toll of the eight years war between him and Iran had eroded his confidence. His inherent paranoia has intensified as well. He became increasingly suspicious, retreating from public appearances and taking refuge in a network of bunkers and palaces established during the war to protect against any potential coup attempts, right? Classic dictator. Classic dictator move. Although Iraqis initially flooded the streets of Baghdad to celebrate the war's end, Saddam knew that the euphoria would be short-lived. And then the hardships of the, the after effect of the war will eventually kick in. He found himself in a very defensive position. He was aware of the political threats that would come from the ruling circle and especially the military. Between the end of the Iran-Iraq war in 1990, there were several assassinations attempt made against him. So he wasn't wrong with his paranoia. No, no. Um, what was that saying? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. The first attempt occurred in November 1988 where assassins tried to target his plane 
upon his return from from Egypt. Uh, the second attempt took place during Iraq's Army Day parade, which was uh, particularly alarming for Saddam because it involved one of his bodyguards. And were the attackers a certain group or was it just random? No, just def- different factions. Factions. Different factions, yeah. Factions. And also in September 1989, a third coup attempt was foiled when Saddam was being celebrated as the new Nebuchadnezzar at a national festival in a reconstructed Babylon. Furthermore, in January 1990, he narrowly also escaped another assassination attempt by the army officers while traveling in his car through Baghdad. So this kind of also intensified paranoia. You know the joke that Saddam has different people, body levels who go out in the same yeah. time. Recognizing his declining popularity, Saddam had implemented a form of liberalizing some state institutions, like kind of what Russia did towards the end of the Soviet Union. Um, so give me an example. Like, for example, um, national elections, there'll be more freedom of press. Okay. okay. Uh, there would be more quote-unquote political parties gotcha. he start. he organized new elections at the national assembly in april 1989 he presented like an a democratic expression however all the candidates that went up for the election were, were vetted a lot of uh, non-bath party members were only allowed to run as independents mm-hmm. uh, they could never form a political party the regime also indicated a willingness to tolerate some criticisms of the government ministers and policies though of course no one really criticized saddam himself or his family, but a lot of ministers were allowed to be criticized. A freedom wall was established at the University of Baghdad encouraging students to write or voice their grievances. The state media started highlighting public complaints, um, sacking ministers who they felt were not doing their jobs right, which allowed the Minister of Information and Culture to say there was no censorship in Iraq. Okay. Also, Western journalists were invited to witness uh, the democratic process of Iraq. So this all happened when the war and this way to regain his popularity. Exactly. And when the war ended, of course, there was no significant gain or losses to the Iraq's territories. They didn't lose any territories, but at the, st- but at the same point, they did not gain anything. It was anything. just a stalemate exactly. kind of war, yeah. Iraq's problem is that it needed access to the Gulf. It's landlocked and it has two rivers, but the rivers, and they don't have access to the sea. So they required control of something called the Khur Abdullah Waterway. And the islands provide, and these islands provide like deep water anchorage for Iraq. The, econ- the economy also presented a major concern. Uh, the estimated cost of post-war reconstruction in Iraq was around 230 billion. 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 It's crazy. A year after the ceasefire, Iraq's oil revenue, sorry, was accounted for 95% of its income. It was only making 13 billion a year. So it's, it was completely under. They were struggling. Yeah. Right? Uh, the government's ex- expenditures were also exceeding. They were about 23 billion and this covered imports, debts and services. And don't forget, a lot of Egyptians were living in Iraq during the war period and they were sending money abroad. That's money being left leaving Iraq. Iraq's external debt also, which they mostly owe to the Gulf states, were from 65 to 80 billion dollars with an increase of 10 billion dollars since the end of the war. Apart from Iraq's Gulf debts, they also were debted to American companies. Yeah, the weapons gun companies, yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Uh, Ab- and ab- supported the wars, yeah. Yeah, and about twenty billion was owed to the USSR and to France. Don't forget, France helped to build a nuclear reactor for Iraq. Yeah. Um, the annual debt service in nineteen ninety was about six to eight billion. As a result, Iraq was compelled to seek new lines of credit and undertake extensive debt reconstruction effort, reconstructing efforts. While Iraq did not have an economy reliant on single cash crops like other Gulf states, it has significant concerns regarding its oil industry. And that's how it generated revenue, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, During the war in Iran, non-oil exports accounted for less than 2% of Iraqi's exports. Um, Although there were some attempts to diversify the economy, 
Iraq still became dependent on oil. oil. It was always like like most Gulf countries. Yeah. The government was also alarmed that the oil prices during the war had fallen to around $14 a barrel in the first half of the 90, rising only to $18 per barrel in that summer. Uh this coupled with stagflation and an estimated inflation of 45% prior to the invasion, it inflicted a heavy toll on its population. The problem also was that OPEC at the time was overproducing. Demand supply. Yeah, basic demand and supply. And the major overproducer from the Gulf countries was Kuwait. Which was driving down the prices. Exactly. And Kuwait's exploitation of the Ramallah uh, oil field, along with which was pretty much saturated in the Iraq-Kuwaiti border, was beginning to be a problem for Iraq. Another concern, of course, to Iraq was its military. By the end of the war with Iran, Iraq had nearly one million men in its army. You have military a big... with no war. Exactly. You know, they become they get agitated. You need to find a distraction for them. Which is, I think, why in Egypt they take up a lot of construction and yeah, they give the military stuff, stuff to, to do. do. Yeah, yeah, so they could uh, get distracted. Give them money, source of income. Yeah, exactly. Um, despite attempts to demo- demobilize an estimated of 200,000 to 300,000 soldiers in the year following the ceasefire, the government halted the process due to economic inability to absorb the new workforce. The problem is when you have a, so much, like if you wanted to like, cut down the armed soldiers, okay, by say 200,000 people, 300,000 people. Where are you going to put them? You're going to put them into the workforce. But if there's now a lot of people in the workforce... And there's not enough jobs. You got to create jobs. Exactly. The problem with that, of course, uh, there was a lot of Egyptian expa- expatriates, right, at the time, uh, who were who had filled the jobs of the Iraqi soldiers during the war. So, that was a problem for Saddam, and he can't really just kick out a Egyptian. whole... Yeah, it's going to cause a lot of political, political stuff, backlash, yeah. yeah. So an idle military poses a significant threat to Saddam's rule, considering Iraq's history of coups. I mean, we did three, two episodes. You say Iraq's? Iraq's coups. And we just we did two previous episodes on the amount the amount of coups that kept happening. Yeah. yeah. So to maintain control, Saddam would uh, as typical purge any potential war heroes, change the generals who he thought were becoming too popular. Uh, His brother-in-law and cousin died in a mysterious helicopter crash, Adnan Kharallah, in May 1989. People think Saddam was behind it. And when the Romanian dictator was executed by the military in 1989, Saddam reportedly distributed pictures of him to subordinates and his intelligence members, sending a clear message that this could be us if we don't get the military oh, behind like sent, us. Sent nudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just sent pictures of dead dictators. Like, like, you guys are going to lose this. <laughs> Take care of that booty. Um, so he needed his army to find new employment, right? Uh, so these internal needs gave rise to another requirement for Iraq. They needed to discover an external crisis that would divert the attention of domestic issues. Domestically, you're doing bad. The military is beginning agitated. Uh, people are assassinated, trying to assassinate you. You need to create something to distract the people. Get them all Bugattis. Exactly. So, and of course, you know how these regimes work. They have, they have historically used the threat of enemies to justify any oppressive domestic policies, any uh, national sacrifice to join the army. In Iraq's case, it was customary. And they blamed everyone. Iraq was a notoriously military-heavy yeah, country. It was. And they blamed pretty much Zionism, imperialism the Gulf. Saddam could even point to the Arab world itself as an issue that needs to be stabilized. Uh, He's always talking about how he wanted to fight for the Palestinian cause. Don't forget that the Ba'ath Party had the problems with the Syrian Ba'ath Party. So yeah, so Saddam could increasingly highlight a lot of Iraq's economic enemies, whose oil policies also seemed to threaten Iraq's vital interests. And Iraq had fulfilled the role of the Diablos ex machina for eight years. It was Iran. Iran was the evil. Now he needed a new evil. evil. Yeah. The new bad. 
So this brings us to part two, Onward Iraqi Soldier. The time has come for the mother-in-law of all battles. Soon the world will tremble as I, Sudan Hussein, unleash my really neat new armies upon the Mideast. Nothing can stand in my way. <laughs> uh, excuse me, is this the Baghdad Cafe? On Thursday, August 2nd, 1990, the Middle East and most of the world woke up to confusion. Iraqi troops suddenly and unexpectedly rolled across the border into a tiny, oil-rich Persian Gulf Emirate called Kuwait. And right from the get, the autocratic rulers of this kingdom, or this emirate, fled with the ruling elites. As the BBC reported, the Kuwait ruler Sheikh al-Jabr al-Ahmed al-Sabah fled into exile with his armor-plated Mercedes across the desert to the neighboring country Saudi Arabia. And 48 hours later, Saddam had annexed Kuwait. Just like that. Just like that. So anyone who I mean, knew... You, you gotta realize how tiny Kuwait is, yeah. It's literally smaller than... It's not even a city. It could be like half a city size. Yeah. Kuwait, anyone who knew any base level understanding figured out why Iraq would do this. Kuwait, after all, is one of the richest countries in the world. It made bulk of its wealth during the 1973 oil crisis. It had the third largest oil reserve, and this was what Saddam was after, right? At this point, we might as well talk about the Kuwaiti government for a bit to give people an understanding. So the government of Kuwait, which the West, of course, would call the beacon of modernization, and who who will wholeheartedly support by any means necessary, was far from an ideal democracy, Mm -hmm. right? Since the establishment of the Kuwaiti Emirate, it was run by one family, who appointed all the ministers. All political parties were banned, and during the period from 1960s to the, until 1991, Iraq, wit- Iraq Kuwait witnessed several human rights abuses. Some of them are, of course, restriction on, on media. There was no freedom of press. There was no political opposition. Kuwait imposed strict restrictions on granting citizenship to individuals, especially those belonging to the Bedouin community. Bedouin uh, meaning without. Oh. There, are, there are Arab residents who are stateless, who are neglected by Kuwait people. Uh, they would face discrimination. They had lack to public services. They were denied basic rights, including education and healthcare. Um, it's a lot about like what people thought, uh, or what people were complaining about Qatar is in the World Cup. Exactly, yeah. And then, of course, you have restriction to workers' rights. Migrant workers in Kuwait were so under it's, it's always been an issue. A kafala system. The treatment of women were also abysmal. Um, it's also important to note that uh, Kuwait has tried to improve slightly. I mean, I think it's one of the few countries now in the Middle East that actually has, a, I think, an electable council, like a national assembly that people could elect. Uh, you uh, can't, until now, Kuwait's economy is pretty solid, too. Yeah. Why did uh, Saddam go, right? The so you're saying I should move to Kuwait? If you want. <laughs> I have a job to become a minister. <laughs> they heard our podcast and they're like, we can just... <laughs> minister of Information. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so now the question is but why like we mentioned why you son of a bitch why <laughs> tell me why Saddam why <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just JR we'll play that JR clip why Triple H you son of a bitch why tell me why like we mentioned in previous episodes Saudi Arabia forgave Saddam on their debt you know like the smartest thing yeah. they did was like listen the debt we gave you keep they it keep it you know, I mean, we fought a valiant war. It's all yours. Um, so it was able to get a pulse on things. They're like, okay, this Saddam dude is not going <laughs> to let yeah, this shit slide. Yeah. yeah. 
But Kuwait, on the other hand, did not read the room and insisted that Saddam pay its $10 billion plus its continuous uh, dispute over, like we mentioned, the Romela oil fields which split the both countries, right? Two-thirds of it lay beneath Iraq. It was being exploited by Kuwait. So Kuwait was... Was doing, Daniel doing Plainview, a, yeah, yeah. Doing a there would be blood on him. It was drinking uh, Iraq's milkshake. Tariq Aziz, Iraq's foreign minister, claimed that Kuwait has siphoned about $2.4 billion worth of oil. But wait, there's more, okay? So Kuwait during the eight-year war... So Iraq during the eight-year war kept exceeding the OPEC production quota by half a million barrels a day, uh, which naturally depressed the price, which would in turn cut into Iraq's revenue, right? On top of that, Saddam was trying to push for a revision for his border with Kuwait, wanting to control over the two islands, which gave him access to the sea, like we mentioned. And in July, on the 22nd anniversary of the Ba'ath Revolution, Saddam presented Kuwait with a set of demands in a final act of intimidation. These demands included stabilizing the international oil price, imposing a freeze on Iraq's wartime loans, establishing an Arab plan akin to the Marshall Plan to aid Iraq's reconstruction efforts. Saddam also uh, warned to Kuwait that if it did not comply, he would be compelled to take decisive action to rectify the situation and regain what he believed to be Iraq's rightful rights. Such a cat. Who, who, uh, Saddam? Yeah, (laughs) such a cat. (laughs) (laughs) It was highly likely that Saddam pretty much had already made the decision to invade Kuwait before issuing his ultimatum on July 18th, right? Yep. On July 21st, approximately 30,000 Iraqi troops has been started deploying near the Kuwaiti border. Where did we see this recently? To be honest, though, before we backtrack, your story on Kuwait is very boring, like in terms of like... Like, Kuwait seems like just a boring place. Like, you know, like when you talk about Iran, military power, this and that. Look, and Iraq, it's literally like this, this small island, you look, know? Look, I'm not going like, to... I know, I know, but there's nothing you can say. I'm just showing you how insignificant Kuwait is as a... As a nation. As a threatening nation. Not a nation, not to devalue the nation, but it's not a threatening nation militarily. It's not, not at all. It's, it's, like literally, it's literally just like, okay, some bad human rights. Mm. and billionaires who like, don't even work like it's not it's there's no external threat like to... i remember during the arab revolution in the arab spring in the tens kuwaitis gave everyone a raise remember with the kuwaiti government so everyone could stop and that. food was free for like three months in kuwait <laughs> yeah like yeah. they can afford giving food for three for free yeah, in their yeah. own country for every single citizen. I know what you mean. Like with Iran, there was like so many revolutions, coups, assassinations. And the Shia Sunnah and Iran was this and it's so, an Persian empire. So it was like Whereas two... Kuwait is just like, we... Okay, the oil thing, sure, but it's like... Yeah, because... They're just rich. The thing is... It's like a, <laughs> a superpower. <laughs> uh, the thing is, um, Iraq... Iraq sorry, Kuwait at the end of the day is... Um, like the ruling family was implemented from Britain... It still remained in Britain's pocket. It became America's pocket, uh, like Jordan, you know what I mean? So there's not really a lot of uh, craziness happening, you know? It's like, it's the perfect colonial state, Yeah, you know? So by July 21st, like we said, uh, 30,000 Iraqi troops had started being deployed near the Kuwaiti border. Saddam put, deployed his troops, same way how Putin would deploy his troops at near Ukraine's borders. You know, every single border dispute, you know? 
So the only factor preventing Iraq from launching a full-on scale invasion was Saddam's desire to secure at least an implicit approval from Washington. Implicit. Implicit, that's what I said. You said implicit. No, I said implicit. Playback. Okay, anyways, <laughs> Saddam's desire was to secure at least an approval from the United States. Implicit. Implicit approval from the United yeah. States for his actions. Yeah, implicit. Yeah, I, I Okay, what did I say? Implicit. 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 Yeah. Okay, how did I say it? It sounded wrong initially. Pretty fine. When you replay, remember Yeah, this. yeah, when I replay. Okay. No, says remember, yeah. Yeah, I'll remember it. I'll, I'll look for it. <laughs> With the collapse of the Soviet <laughs> Union, the pre- <laughs> for correcting my <laughs> implicit, yeah. They would have butchered you, man. <laughs> With the collapse of the Soviet Union the previous year, Saddam thought that the United States was the only power capable of obstructing his plans. Oh, yeah, because then they didn't have the USSR mm. backing them and playing that tug of war that they usually used to do. Exactly. They So they... So that's a, that's a big one. So countries who like so unrestricted American, so you had to win over America. Exactly. So you can't just invade any country with the threat. Well, if you if America wants to join in, the US, yeah, they didn't have that. No, option. no. The United States was still was still sending mixed signals to regarding a stance on Baghdad. It didn't want to fully commit to it yet. Mm, gaslighting. Well, yeah. Well, the Senate advocated for imposing sanctions on Iraq. George President George Bush continued to express his interest in fostering a bilateral relationship with the Iraqi government. And the senior. Viewers, this is bon- George Bush Yeah, senior. this is George H. George what, H. Bush. What, what does the H stand for? Harold. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring it up. Halt, halt. George Halt Bush. George Halt William Bush. <laughs> George Hartthorne Bush. Anyway. His name was H. <laughs> it's just H. <laughs> okay, what does HW say? There's a George H. Bush. Yeah, that's him. No, there's a different one. Really? He was a politician in New York and a lawyer. Herbert Walker Bush. Nice. Nice. That's very that's American. A, that's a very American name. George Herbert Walker Bush. Watson. <laughs> so President George, what did he say? Herbert Walker. George Herbert Walker Bush continued to express interest in fostering a bilateral relations with the Iraqi government. In June, John Kelly, the U.S. Assistant Secretary to the State of State for the Near Eastern Affairs, opposed the congressional move to impose sanctions on Iraq, arguing it would only be detrimental to the national interest of the United States. Keep that in mind, huh? Amidst all this, the U.S. and the Western allies were sending also conflicting messages to Iraq. After the war in Iran, the United States had positioned itself as a supporter of Iraq. And despite the chemical attacks and massacres committed, Iraq was still able to buy $36 billion worth of weapons and components for a nuclear program from the United States and Western powers. Yeah, the Americans never care about atrocities. No, it's only when it suits them they care. Between 1985 and 1990, Iraq was purchasing about 9% of all military equi- equipment sold globally. All the military equipment sold around the world, 9% of it was being sold to Iraq, which is fucking a lot. But in February, Voice of America uh, made an editorial cr- critical of Saddam and his, hum- and his human rights abuses. And the U.S. ended up apologizing for supporting him. And George Herbert, is it Herbert? George Herbert Bush opposed going through with any sanctions still, despite apologies. And like, we're not going to sanction Iraq. And I think he wanted to read the room first. Exactly. And to quote a now infamous quote from uh, April Gillespie, the American ambassador to, uh, to Iraq, she said, the U.S. had no opinion about border disputes between Arab nations and repeated such sentiment two days removed from the invasion. She said that the, United, uh, the U.S. does not have any obligation to defend Kuwait. 
And based on a leaked transcript of the conversation between Gillespie and Saddam, uh, which was, of course, denied, no, which has never been denied by the U.S. Uh, State Department, she responded to Saddam's aggressive remarks by stating that the United States has, again, no opinion on the Arab-Arab conflict, especially border disputes with Kuwait. She also praised Saddam for his efforts to rebuild Iraq after the war. And in response to Saddam's claim that the United States was supporting Kuwaiti's actions against Iraq's economy, she reassured him that the president of the United States would not declare any economic war against Iraq. So she was simping for Iraq. Yeah, she gaslit him pretty much. She's like, yeah, yeah, do what you need to do. Uh, go into Kuwait as much as you want and we don't have any problems yeah, but Iraq should have learned by now how much America was egging them on especially in the Iraq, Iran war yeah that's true and how America with the contras and they, everything they kept egging both sides yeah Gillespie then conveyed they probably that, thought them at war is even better for them maybe they yeah maybe they saw like listen we just need to sell more weapons yeah the guy's willing to buy Gillespie then conveyed that her main objective in this was in the spirit of friendship was to understand Saddam's intentions regarding Kuwait from the American perspective. She just wanted to know why. Why? Why Saddam? <laughs> why do you hate Kuwait so much? Um, Saddam told her that his belief was Kuwait uh, was an aggressor due to its manipulation of oil prices, which affect Iraqis' livelihoods. He concluded by stating that if an agreement could not be reached with Kuwait, Iraq would not accept its demise. Uh, upon returning to Washington, she consulted with President Bush, and three days later, Iraq launched its invasion in Kuwait. When the details of the Glaspie meeting was made public by the Iraqis in Baghdad, she faced accusations raising from being the most naive woman in the room to giving Saddam the green light for the invasion. So her career was destroyed. Glaspie strongly refuted these allegations. In a later interview with the New York Times, she expressed that she neither expressed that she... Uh, or anyone else anticipated that Iraq would annex the entirety of Kuwait. She just thought it would be the oil fields. The two rivers. Yeah. The US uh, and its allies viewed the invasion of the 2nd uh, of August as something intolerable. First, it was a very shallow fact that the country was a member of the United Nations. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like, yeah, you can't annex a country that's been a part of the UN. As if the UN meant something. Yeah. Even though Kuwait was as de- as deplorable as Iraq when it came to human rights, you know. But another important fact, this is the main reason why America shifted loyalties in hindsight. The Middle East had 65% of the world's oil reserves, right? Of course, the por- the biggest portion was Saudi Arabia, which controlled 25%. Iraq controlled about 9.9% of all the oil reserves, and Kuwait controlled 9.3%. Quick maths. If Iraq were take it, it would be 9.2. Which is about 20% of all oil, oil reserves. Which is up there with Saudi. Exactly. And then they would be able to control. And they would imagine- control the price and therefore control Iraq and... Saddam was a lot more unstable than the Saudis. Exactly. And if you keep and if you remember we said that fifty percent of Kuwaiti oil was going to the United States in the last episode. So if Iraq were to control it, you never know. Exactly. So that was the main motive why like, okay, this cannot be a thing. And they were scared that okay, if Saddam controlled Kuwait, what would stop him from going to Saudi Arabia's eastern provinces as well? Right? So the UN of course moved fast to embargo Iraq with George Bush uh, leading the charge by sending a multinational naval task force in the Gulf to blockade Iraq. And by the 1990, they had about 400,000 military forces from 30 countries there. So we need to talk about something um, I don't know if you're aware of. It's called 
But do you, do you remember the story of the incubators? Yeah, the famous baby incubators. Exactly. So emotions create reality and reality demands action, right? Yeah. America for, you know how in America to change yeah, to justify why they want to, to go into war. Because as far as the public care, why are we getting involved? Saddam was a nobody, right? Oh, you need a noble reason to get involved. Exactly. And this brings us to a story of a young woman named Nayer. On October 10th, 1990, a 15-year-old girl <clears throat> gave a riveting testimony before Congress about the horrors inside uh, Kuwait after the Iraq invaded. She claims that after Iraq invaded, there were widespread reports of looting, right? And this started before Naira. So like the Kuwaiti UN representative wrote in a letter to the Secretary General, Iraqis were stealing baby incubators. They were looting houses, factories, stores, hospitals, academic in institutions, and, in, and universities. Hmm? This is all in Kuwait. Yeah, they just came to steal, loot them, pretty much. He also mentioned that Iraqis were stealing x-ray machines, scanners, lab equipment. They needed the money, bro. <laughs> Bunsen burners. They needed rulers. <laughs> rulers, pencils, rubbers, <laughs> erasers, blackboards, markers. The, but the thing that caught people's attention were the looting of the incubators, right? Wahab al-Fazan, the exiled Kuwaiti health minister who was residing in Taif, wrote, said in the press conference that... Um, the soldiers were forcibly evacuating patients from hospitals, confiscating high-tech equipment, ambulances, drugs, and plasma. The Washington Post also provided insight into the origins of the Kuwait baby storm, which originated from a letter written by a senior Kuwaiti public health official to a European diplomat. Okay. Um, as much as this was being reported, what we need to talk to is about a company called Hill and Knowlton. In 1990, Hill and Knowlton was a public relations firm was, and it was approached by the Kuwaiti expatriates in New York. And they took the role of representing something called the citizens of a free Kuwait. The primary goal of which was a national campaign to raise awareness among American public about the threat posed by Iraqis on the Kuwaitis. Effectively garnered support for strong action, Hill and Knowlton commissioned a $1 million study to determine what would be the most effective tactic to get the people to sympathize with them so they conducted a focus group aiming to identify the approach they would have to take to get the greatest impact from public opinion and the study revealed that highlighting atrocities particularly something that involves kids would be a compelling method it was estimated that hill and Knowlton was received up to 12 million dollars from kuwaiti authorities for this public relations campaign according to various scholars opinions differ regarding the level of knowledge and involvement of the united states but German historian Andreas Elter stated that the actions of the U.S. advertising agency working for Kuwait had a certain association with the White House and that President Bush was briefly was reported briefed by the agency on every step they took. However, whether he personally approved of the baby story cannot be proven, but it's regarded that the government knew what Hillary Knowlton was doing. On October 10th, like we said, Nayer provided a final testimony at the caucus. Her testimony, she revealed that how she recently left Kuwait, where she used to volunteer as a nurse at El Dair Hospital. She witnessed Iraqi soldiers entering the hospital with guns, removing babies from incubators and taking the babies. And taking taking the incubators and leaving yeah, the babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pass the, yeah, they, leave the baby. Pass the incubators. Yeah. Yeah, well, forget the kid. Get the incubator. Yeah, Leaving the helpless children to die. The horrifying event deeply affected Nayera, who saw her own premature nephew suffering the same fate. She also described the, the widespread discussion caused by, Iraqi, by Iraqis in Kuwait. The looting of supermarkets and pharmacies and factories. The torturing and abusing of neighbors. She personally spoke of a friend of one of her friends who was tortured by Iraqis. 
Uh, she highlighted that Iraq's brutal response to finding dead soldiers would be to go down the house and burn it down and just wait for the family to all burn. Right. As Naya and her family were leaving Kuwait, they were faced with mockery and abuse from the Iraqis who also made fun of President Bush. She, oh, no. she had to highlight that they were mocking Bush no, too. No, not Bush. They're like, you know what's even worse? They were mocking George yeah. Herbert Bush. <laughs> he mentioned that's, that's when it says, I can't stand no more. <laughs> Arsene Nair was a crisis actor. In 1992, the Middle East Watch, a division of the Human Rights Watch, investigated this incubator story, and they found no evidence to support the claim that the Iraqi soldiers were stealing incubators and left babies to die on floors. I think she's a crisis actor. Yeah, she's a crisis actor. Yeah. Oh, no. So the Middle East Watch, a division of the Human Rights Watch, we said, investigated the story and found that it was completely baseless. There was no kids left to die. The organizers stated that the stories were manufactured for war propaganda. But look, it wouldn't. The problem is, Saddam did shady shit already. So it's not far fetched. Because of what he did with Iran and the chemical weapons and all that. Yeah, but he stoops to a low level. He does. Again, this is something we see in 1991 or 1990. These false allegations to get American people rallied up and to play on invade, American sympathies yeah. to invade, and then. Less than, than like a decade later, the same, same thing would happen again. You know what I mean? Doctors were interviewed by one investigation confirmed that none of their incubators were taken by the Iraqis. No babies were removed from them. Amnesty International, which initially supported her story, later retracted its support, stating that they actually found no reliable evidence of Iraqi forces causing deaths of babies by removing them from incubators. So to address the allegation, the Kuwaiti government hired Corolla Associates to conduct an independent investigation. It investigated that Nair's original testimony was distorted as she only admitted to only seeing one baby being pulled out of an incubator. There was public outrage when her identity was revealed, but it was discovered that this information was withheld from Carol Association. Now, who is Nayara? Do you want to take a guess? She's, uh... Julia Roberts. Uh, <laughs> she was the... <laughs> Method actress Meryl Streep. <laughs> yeah. <if anyone>. yeah. <laughs> she was the daughter of the Quet ambassador of the to the United States. Wow. Yeah, and she had. She even, wasn't a nurse. She even wasn't even there. She was in America. She even had not seen the trustee. She wasn't even there. She she confirmed she. Maybe went, she telepathically communicated with. Maybe. Nurses. Yeah, she saw it in a vision. You know, some like Raven. All the stories the United Nations would receive about incubators were being re-examined. And they were saying that later it was found that Hill and Knowlton actually had coached witnesses into repeating her story exactly so they could all keep their stories in check. It's a good PR company. It I is. I get that. Yeah. You gave them free ad. Yeah, exactly. If you ever need help, guys, call them. <laughs> if they were able to check the United <laughs> States the public. <laughs> to go. <laughs> um, yeah, Hill and Knowlton. I wonder if they're still in business. No journalist. Of course, the big problem is, and a lot of people would begin to be critical as well. How? Why did no journalists bother and to investigate these claims when they first came out? Right? Uh, Knowlton, as in like no. No, yeah. The world's leading communication companies. Uh, Susan B. Trento wrote in her book The Powerhouse and if that look at Hill and Knowlton. There was an office temporarily closed in Jeddah in Bataji. <laughs> <and> strategies, public <laughs> relations. It has one star. <laughs> Why? What was the review? Please tell me it's about the war in Iraq. Let's see. It's like, did not buy the incubator story. One star. Wrong directions. <laughs> <laughs> so Susan B. Trento wrote in her book The Powerhouse and in death look at Hill and Knowlton. 
She, called, she wrote, and I quote, the diplomats, the congressmen, and the senators wanted something to support their position. The media wanted visual, wanted a, wanted a visual interesting story. On November 1990, the UN authorized the use of all means necessary to, to eject Iraq from Kuwait. On, on January 12, 1991, the United States Congress authorized the use of force. So I'm just, uh, so Helen Knowlton yeah. are notoriously known for the Iraq stuff. Isn't it weird that Hill sounds close to Hillary? So they had controversies with the tobacco industry. They helped that. The Bank of Credit, the false testimony of the NPR of uh, the government of Kuwait. And but up, but up. Church but of Scientology. What? Okay, look, I think the Church of Scientology know. thing could be true. From 87 <laughs> to 91. They've also been, they've also... Uh, Helped out countries like t- Turkey, Maldives, and Indonesia and Uganda during their times when they were like doing uh, violate human rights violations. Look, there's a, there's a, there's a, there was a time where the CIA would use Indonesia to get rid of communists. I think we need to do a future episode of that because it was a bloodbath, man. Bloodbath. Like it was the most. Have you ever seen the documentary The Act of Killing? It was a very surreal documentary. Like Ah, okay. They also like represent companies saying that fossil fuels don't contribute to. Global warming, oh, yeah, yeah. So they're just a shitty company. They're like the they're like, one of, they're like one of the most evil companies ever, man. They're the type of villains where like Russell Crowe would do a film with his lo- testimony against he, them, but he loses. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Because he can't fight against them. He can't fight against the big ones. Yeah, yeah. but he gave a valiant fight. You yeah, know? and then who's the exposition guy? I was like, he can't beat the industry, but Jake- he's actually like respects and Paul Giamatti. Yeah. <laughs> Like we said, January 12, 1991, the United States government authorized the use of force against Iraq. The mo- so let's go to the next part, the mother of all battles. This will not be another Vietnam. This will not be a protracted, drawn-out war. In the early, so we said, in the early hours of August 2, 1990, an Iraqi force consisting of 100,000 troops and 300 tanks went into Kuwait and destroyed the 16,000 Kuwaiti soldiers, right? Effectively taking control of the country. Unlike the previous invasion in Iran, the Iraqis encountered no opposition. Like we said, the ruling party all ran away and disappeared. The Kuwaiti border offered no resistance. And even within Kuwaiti city, Saddam's only setback was that he's like, that's the only thing that bothered him. He's like, like, why? He wanted to catch him. He wanted to catch him. A vulgar display of power, I guess. Huh? Well, how did he escape? Was there was an assistance from the CIA to take him out. A specialized unit of the Republican Guard had been tasked with seizing the Dasman Palace upon entering Kuwait and capturing the royal family. However, they only found that the only royal family member present was someone called Sheikh Fahd, the Emir's brother, who was, ho- who was overseeing the Kuwaiti soccer team. He bravely actually fought the guards and the palace steps with his pistol, but was eventually shot and killed by one of the Iraqi soldiers. Wow. Yeah. Um... Within a remarkably short span of seven hours, the invasion of Kuwait was successfully completed. So in seven hours, a work day, <laughs> Iraq took over Kuwait. So like at 8 a.m. you're going to work and you hear that Kuwait, Iraq has, Iraq has entered Kuwait. By the time, before you're even, you're, 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 like, you're finished your work and it's like Kuwait is completely annexed. Yeah, that must be so like surreal back then to yeah. read, if you, especially if you're in Kuwait. Yeah, and all of a sudden you're you're waking Iraq. up one morning and you're in Iraq. Yeah, and then at the end of the day when you go home to dinner, you're in Iraq. Saddam's invasion of Kuwait was considered a significant military miscalculation, though in modern history, the unprovoked attack against its neighbor. Not a lot of grievances. Exactly, <laughs> the whole the whole civilization went against him. <laughs> Everyone denounced him. 
Um, yeah, you, and they, you, did you, a, they set up a special congress. <laughs> yeah, and they, and they declared war on him. Yep, I've seen this before. Yep, yep. Yeah. What didn't happen to you? Thirty-three turns they had to, <laughs> to get back quick. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? You inflicted grievances upon others. Yeah. Thirty-three turns. Yeah. Immediate international response included uh, George. Herbert Bush imposing economic embargo, freezing Kuwaiti and Iraqi assets, suspending trade with Kuwait. The United States and the Soviet Union, which was like still at the dying phase, you know. Yeah, you I mean? told me it was done by then. No, it was dying. It wasn't done. Issued the joint condemnation and Iraq faced condemnation from the United Nations, the Arab League, and a total embargo was imposed by the United Nations Security Council. I guess Kuwait never really bothered anyone like foreign policy-wise. That's, yeah, yeah, I guess. They just gave money to people. Saudi Arabia sought military assistance from the United States because of it. And I can imagine Saudi also being concerned. Very concerned. And that's the beginning of Saudis having the United States on their borders. Uh, the invasion also like, got international backlash from everyone and their mother. On August 7th, George Herbert Bush announced the deployment of the 82nd Airborne Division of, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, they were going to go with an air force attack, right? Marking the be- beginning of something what we call Operation Desert Storm. Classic. <laughs> Guys, if, if, like, no one knows Operation's name. But they know that it's Desert Storm. Storm. It's like, you know, like, the mainstream one. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those classic ones. Yeah, yeah, like, when people in Metallica, they know, like, Enter the Sandman, you know? If you know the United States, you know their no. encore would be Operation Desert Storm. No, just internal. <laughs> like, the greatest operation of all time. Operation, operation Desert, Desert Storm, Storm yeah. yeah. To be honest, it's a great name. It has a ring to it. Even, like, at work. We have something called Desert Storm. Really? Yeah. We're invading. <laughs> <laughs> Another con- company. Company, yeah. Um, yeah, Operation... I don't know any other famous Operation names. The Shock and Awe, but... No, there's Operation Freedom. There's some German ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you're right, what's the most popular operation? Like, the moment you say military operation, everyone's going to think Desert Storm. Back to the point we deviated. So, Operation Desert Storm. And the largest overseas deployments of American troops since the Vietnam War. Keep in mind, by the way, Bush, George Bush was kind of upset that Vietnam had left a, like a bad stain on the U.S. Uh, US the U.S. military. Yeah, America hasn't been at war since. No, it hasn't been at war since. And like to have your last war, Vietnam, where like it was so unpopular and so degrading for you to come back home with no public support that like, even the vets were being spat on. Yeah. Forget the fact that the government fucked them over later, you know what I mean? But yeah. like, yeah. And it was like <clears throat> when Hogan started getting booed. Yeah. And then Hogan was like, listen, I need to do, I need I need a change, brother. I went NWO. Yeah. America went NWO. Mm. Uh-huh. And George H. Bush did say it's a new world order, huh? Yep. Mm. The mother of all conspiracy theories created that night and the greatest faction of all. <laughs> I'm beginning to think there's something between history and Hulk Hogan. Which we're beginning to bridge the thread. You, you will, we will make an episode on the historical impact of Hulk Hogan. <laughs> we'll, we'll break down his 80s. His 90s. His 2000s. Everything. Uh, in his televised address, George Bush condemned Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein's aggression and, drew par- and this was the first time he drew parallels between Saddam and I'm going to say Hitler. Emphasizing the need to resist this appeasement. We cannot appease him anymore, right? Clever words. Yeah. The president outlined the four guiding principles of his policies. The immediate withdrawal of Iraq, the restoration of the Iraq Kuwaiti government, the stability in the Gulf, and the protection of American lives in Kuwait. 
Saddam engaged in the desperate diplomatic efforts to extradite himself from the Kuwaiti crisis while trying to save his reputation, right? So he was telling them, like, listen, I'm willing to help, but I do not want to look like I lost. You know what I mean? He doesn't yeah. want to remove... He wants to keep quit, but he doesn't want all the embargoes. Yeah, so he's trying to find a, like a between line. Cause he, he wants I'm pretty his sure, cake and wants to eat it too. And I'm pretty sure he knows, like, he's like, oh, shit, I didn't really expect the this much aggression. You know what because I mean? Because based on his seating with the ambassadors, the, uh, sorry, the, the ministry lady... Yeah, he's like, yo, you guys give me the green light. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Careful, Nikki. Or she'll cock tease you the way she did the Dark Lord. Um, the only ones who supported Saddam Hussein, surprisingly, were... King Hassan of Jordan. Sergeant Slaughter. And unsurprisingly, Yasser Arafat. Of course. <laughs> of course. Who saw the opportunity to strengthen their positions using this war. So the Allied attack on Iraq was known as Operation Desert Storm began on January 16th, 1991, and involved the relentless air bombardments that overwhelmed Iraqi defenses. Keep in mind, side note, uh, all airlines kind of shut down during that period. Uh, uh, <laughs> was stuck in Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> the intensive six-week campaign target. <laughs> Meanwhile, in all this. Meanwhile. A, a, a sperm <laughs> managed its way through an egg. Through the wilderness. <laughs> through the uncertainty of the Gulf War. <laughs> and survived. All the stresses. <laughs> that, so yeah, so all airports shut down. You plan on doing a Gulf War movie through the eyes of... Of me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> X-ray, human <laughs> stomach. Like, yeah. I mean, like, there, like there's a war happening and it will be spiced in with scenes of ma- like you mom being pregnant. Yeah, like yeah. me trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> How are you going to get born in this world? Like, I can't come on because, like this. Um, <laughs> just not to underplay it, but there was a fever in Saudi, a genuine fear where they will be invaded next. And mm. I think it's heavily underplayed. But for those who did live in the Middle East at the time, a lot of people, expats in Saudi, fled the country to their home country, mm-hmm. fully expecting Saddam to enter Saudi next. Not even that. You didn't even know who was going to go against two. Um, especially yeah. like Iraq. You didn't know like, okay, does that mean Iraq was going to use Palestinians to start using attacks in Israel, then what would that mean to, to that region? Yeah, so everyone in the Middle East was expecting some kind of mini Middle Eastern, Middle, Middle Eastern war. war. Yeah. And the lines were being drawn. Yeah, exactly. And Palestinians were being kicked out of countries that were pro-Kuwait. So they kind of didn't like the fact that Palestinians stood with uh, Kuwait, uh, Iraq, so they kicked them out. Iraqis were being disposed from other places. Iraqis was expelling so Egyptians. It was a... It was a genuine Middle Eastern crisis. Yeah. So on January 16th, 1991, when I was still um, three months away from being born, America decided to bombard Iraq, overwhelming its defenses. And you. And me. <laughs> overwhelming me and Iraqi defenses. Yeah. <laughs> the, in- the intensive six-week campaign targeted military, political, and strategic and economic sites in both Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, despite Iraq's sizable air force, which, of course, we talked about during the Iraq-Iran war, they were unable to effectively counter. Uh, the coalition war consisted of four phases, right? So there was an air, naval, and ground operations to liberate Kuwait. Allied bombers carried out ranged attacks over various targets. Like we said, early raids focused on radar communications. Then it was warning stations. Then it was air defenses battles. Precision bombings followed by utilizing aircraft and cruise missiles to target airfields, command centers, Iraqi, Iraqi troop concentrations, oil refineries, and long-range missile batteries. 
in the initial days of the bombardment, Iraq Baghdad faced heavy assaults, resulting in insignificant damage of landmarks, including the presidential palace, the Ba'ath Party headquarters, and the Ministry of Defense buildings. Like it was banger after banger after yeah, but banger. But it sounded pretty efficient. It was to efficient. Be honest, like if you put on your just normal military hat, they targeted places that should have been targeted. Yeah, if you yeah. are doing a war. Yeah, without like targeting civilians. civilians yeah. Shortly after the start of the offensives, Saddam defiantly addressed the Iraqi people, proclaiming the the mother of all battles had finally begun, and urged them to live up to their reputations as Iraqis. Iraq television broadcasted footage of Saddam visiting the streets of Baghdad, where he was being revered by an elderly woman. Saddam prepared the Iraqi population for war, issuing instructions for self-protection, how to protect themselves against any chemical or nuclear attacks, what to do if you had a black we had a blackout. How to stockpile emergency supplies. Civilian defense drills were conducted, including large-scale evaluation evacuations of Baghdad involving hundreds to thousands of people. Yeah, he was prepared for the apocalypse. He was prepared, yeah. Saddam he wasn't anti- backing out. No, Saddam also anticipating the negative impact of Operation Desert Storm on the Iraq's economy and military strength, sought to provoke the alliance into a ground war. He didn't want to fight them on the air. He's like, I want to fight them on boots to the ground. Because he believed that no American would want to sustain heavy casualties on their soldiers. Smart. So he tried to force it, but of course he failed in doing so. And after failing to lure the Allies into ground offensive, Saddam employed a different tactic. Towards the end of January, he ignited various oil installations in Kuwait. He started setting oil refineries on fire and began pumping crude oil into the northern Gulf, causing largest oil slick ever recorded, covering an estimate of 240 square miles. Uh, despite Saddam's failed attempt, okay, he relied on the skillful use of propaganda as well to, sit, to, to show him that as a successful hero president. So what would happen was that America started bombing uh, Khavji, and it killed hundreds of civilians in an air raid shelter. This, of course, made Saddam... A hero. It intensified protests uh, in Baghdad. It led to accusations of war crimes. George Bush was being criticized for for avoiding direct confrontation and saying that using long-distance technology, you're going to bomb civilians. It's like Obama and drones, drones, yeah. Uh, Western journalists were also invited to Baghdad to witness the aftermath of airstrikes, and they found that civilians were being killed and bombed, uh, which had an impact on the Western public opinion and it start, sparked an anti-war protest throughout the Arab world. And a lot of American politicians and Democrats began to opposing the war. Even King Hussein of Jordan, who was initially supportive or usually supportive of the West, accused the Allies of committing atrocities. While the bombings were effective in weakening Saddam, it also impacted daily lives of Iraqi civilians. They bombed water tanks, they bombed electricity centers. So Iraq, Baghdad had no running water, they had no electricity. So they went away from military stuff and went to civilian. Exactly. The sale of fuel was banned, so Iraq had no fuel, no oil. Uh, bringing a country to halt, the country just stopped. Uh, however, Saddam refused to take responsibility for any of these problems, and he only blamed the Allies for his failed invasion of Kuwait. In February 1991... Um, Whatever was left of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev tried to broker a ceasefire between the United States and Iraq. You know, the the last minute face turn. Yeah. <laughs> As the yeah, there's one good the Soviet Union can do. <laughs> yeah, instead of doing a Pizza Hut commercial, was this? As the air as the air war was making people uneasy and Saddam was keen to end the conflict, 
so the Iraqis agreed to meet with the Soviet Union. They believed that Saddam was interested in a peaceful resolution, but Saddam expressed practical concerns in private conversations with the Soviet envoy, including he wanted the safe retreatment of Iraq troops and he wanted the lifting of sanctions. But then he added other shit. He wanted the complete lifting of the United Nations sanction to cancel all Iraq's $80 billion debt. That's all he wanted. Yeah. Uh, uh, but of course, George H.W. was like, nope, we're not canceling that. Um, and he didn't and he didn't want to li- <clears throat> lift the sanctions. Uh, this kind of embarrassed Moscow because it showed like they had no, <laughs> they had no effect liberating uh, Kuwait. And the Soviet proposal of an unconditional withdrawal was... Like at first it was accepted, but then Saddam rejected it. He's like, I don't know. So the only thing that stopped it from working was technically George Bush not wanting to lift the, uh, the sanctions. Uh, following the Gulf War, the full extent of the Allied victory became apparent on the, to the Iraqis. On March 3rd, 1991, a ceasefire meeting at the Safwan Air Base, Air Base took, took hold. You know why? Because I was born. Yeah. They're like, listen, Kareem is born. The second coming. Yeah. Uh, we need to have a ceasefire on that day. Yeah. <laughs> Saddam's like, listen, <laughs> Moscow was like, just for this day, and George, and George H. W. was like, okay. Yeah, ceasefire, and like, yeah, <laughs> the like, light was speaking. Yeah. In Egypt. <laughs> In Egypt, yeah. General Schwarzkopf. It's a terrible name. Yeah. Explain to the, he's an Iraqi. Explain to Schwarzkopf. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Abdelaziz Korsav. Korsav explained to the Iraqi commanders that the Allies had captured about 73,000 square kilometers of the territory, including 15% of Iraq. They had taken about 58,000 political prisoners of war. Iraq made only one request, to be able to fly their helicopters since most of the country's roads and bridges have been destroyed. In the days after the war, General Wafik al-Sumari now he's Iraqi, was summoned, to, yeah. <laughs> was summoned to meet Saddam Hussein, who had been moving from different houses in Baghdad to avoid American bombs. Saddam asked the general for his evaluation of the war, where this general replied that it was the biggest defeat in military history. In six weeks, they got fucking bombed to oblivion, right? Larger than the defeat that uh, in the Iraq-Iran war. Although Saddam was aware of the extent of Iraq defeat, he was not willing to accept the blame. He had previously blamed generals for his disaster. But he knew that the, the defeat was generally scurred on him because he's the one who made the decision. So his response to Samari was be brief. He said, that's your opinion. On April 3rd, 1991, a month after, when, when I was a month years old, uh, U.S., Britain, France passed a U.N. Security Council Resolution 687, which demanded that, that Iraq disclose uh, all this chemical... Demand um, that Kareem get safely evacuated. <laughs> Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Iraq disc- Yo, I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, which demanded that Iraq disclose all its chemical and biological weapons, its ballistic missile stocks, its nuclear materials to the United Nations and to, and to cooperate in destroying them, which we'll come back to later. later. Iraq was also required to return all Kuwaiti property to Kuwait to compensate foreign nationals and companies affected by the op- occupation of Kuwait because you got because you got to help them private firms, right, son? Sanctions would remain in place except for medicine and health supplies. And, any co- and, the compliance, and compliance with the UN resolution was necessary for any reduction or lifting of sanctions. So Iraq was pretty much like, listen, if you want the sanctions to go, you have to comply with what we have to say. America said that. Uh, United Nations said that. America, United yeah, Nations. Uh, United Nations, sorry. Iraq was prohibited from selling oil in the meantime, by the way. 
so let's talk about the damages the Western powers have done to Iraq, right? Um, there was some. There was a six-lane highway between Kuwait and Iraq, known as Highway 80. It's an infamous and devastating event that took place during the Persian Gulf War. The road was used by Iraqi armored divisions of the 1990 invasion to go back home, right? But it was being heavily targeted by American, Canadian, British, French aircrafts and ground forces. So on the night of February 26th to 27th, 1991, retreating Iraqi military personnel attempting to leave Kuwait were attacked and it resulted in the destruction of hundreds of vehicles and the death of many of the soldiers. A lot of people saw this as like a massacre. Like you, you attacked a retreating force yeah. who were going back home. They promised they were going back home. Yeah, it was. Um, They're trigger hunger. It was called the Highway of Death, and the images of soldiers being killed on the side of the road on a highway uh, was taken. The media refused to report on it. Uh, the events that took place on Highway 80 are a tragic reminder of the devastating toll of war on both sides. The loss of life and destruction caused by conflict is a solemn reminder of the human cost of war, right? Yeah. And also, let's keep in mind that Iraqi people also suffered, right? Another like distressing incident would be called the bulldozer assault. Uh, th- there were two brigades of the U.S. 1st Infantry Deci- uh, Division, we were mechanized artillery, uh, infantry were faced with a highly fortified trench network, which was in Iraq, right? It was called the, the Saddam Hussein line. After much conf- consideration, the U.S. forces chose to use an anti-mine plow attached to tanks to combat the earth movers. So they went and they brought a plow and they buried the soldiers who were in the trenches. They buried them alive. Um, the media was prohibited from witnessing the attack, which took place near a neutral zone that separates Saudi Arabia and Iraq. It was just a trench where soldiers were hanging out. America went and covered them all. Every American in the assault was in an armored vehicle. U.S. commanders claimed that thousands of Iraqis had surrendered, escaped being the live burial during the two-day assault. But however, the Iraqi government later reported that they only found 44 bodies. They couldn't find the rest of them because they were all buried alive under the ground. Uh, John Simpson alleges in his book, The War Against Saddam, that the U.S. forces attempted to cover up the incident. After the event, the commander of the 1st Brigade stated that although burying people Sounds terrible. It would have been worse if they put American troops in the trenches. Of course, Dick Cheney never mentioned this. Prepared an interim report to the Congress on Operation Desert Storm. Keep in mind he was the Secretary of Defense for George H.W. Worst dude of all time. Yep. He acknowledged that 457 enemy soldiers were buried during the ground war, but he didn't say they were buried alive. It's a tragic reminder again. Of course, the Kuwaiti oil fires, which is like one famous image people talk about, was all set when the Iraqis were leaving. Scorched earth policy, burn everything while you're retreating. Uh, the fires burnt un- out of control and they were extinguished. The final, the final fire was extinguished 10 months later. It was estimated that around 6 million barrels of oil were lost each day due to the fires. And resulting fires caused widespread pollution, environmental impact, and was predicted to be catastrophic. And it's specu- like the speculations about a nuclear winter that could happen. The effect on rain, global warming, from burning, all that, yeah. Uh, for many Kuwaitis and all those neighboring countries, the whole air was covered in smoke uh, for days on end. It was perpetual darkness. And um, the, wo- the wind would blow the smoke into the eastern half of the Arabian Peninsula. So Saudi even effect- felt the effects of this too. One thing about the Gulf War was that it was heavily telev- televised. It introduced new technologies such as satellite technology, which, which covered war from, from satellites. 
okay, like uh, satellite TV. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the media also had access to. They had. I think it was the first <coughs> American war where there was like direct media access. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they had access to military innovations such as camera-equipped high-tech weaponry, which allowed live coverage of missiles hitting targets. I guess it's the significance of Desert Storm more than yeah. the attack. Yeah. However, the media's ability to cover the war was limited due to its pool system, which relied heavily on information and images supplied by the military. The military would give the tapes. Now, one com- one channel that really benefited from this was CNN. CNN. Everyone knows the story. CNN was the first ever 24-hour news program, and the Iraq War really helped to popular popularize it because everyone was always like, no matter what time of day you're bringing it, they were covering the war. And something was happening 24 hours. <clears throat> Yeah, the coverage was often cited as a landmark event in the development of network news and network television. It made Ted Turner so much money. Uh, some criticized CNN's coverage for turning the war into a dramatic, patriotic spectacle. No, CNN are the worst. Yeah, they are. Um, so let's talk the coalition that attacked Iraq. Are you ready to hear the countries that were involved? Argentina, Australia, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Belgium, Canada, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Egypt, France, Greece, Honduras, Hungary, Italy, Kuwait, Malaysia, Morocco, Netherlands, New Zealand, Niger, Norway, Oman, Pakistan, Philippines, Poland, Portugal, Qatar, Romania, Saudi, Senegal, South Korea, Spain, Sweden, Syria, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, and the United States. All that. All that joined the war to attack Iraq. Man, they're waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, speak of like a gauntlet, man. Like, there but was talk no... about a unanimous, you are the bad guy. Right? Like, to be honest, <laughs> one of the few words were like, Every... Iraq, you, you are wrong 100%. All these countries. And of course, Germany. Like, even Kuwait with its human rights issues and all that, mm. they were not in the wrong with that war. Surprisingly, Iran was not involved, huh? Because they were still re- recovering from the yeah. last war. They didn't want any part of it. And who was not in the Cuba was not Israel involved. Israel was not? No. Interesting. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure to save face. Like, listen, Israel, you could put your name on there, America. <laughs> you know, um, Germany and and Japan didn't provide mili- didn't provide direct military action, but they gave financial assistance and donated military equipment. It was called checkbook diplomacy. During the Gulf War, a thousand Kuwaiti civilians were killed. Six hundred went missing. About three hundred seventy-five were found in mass graves. Uh, the U.S. of the use US, of U.S. of A. No, the use of air attacks of both coalitions, warplanes, and cruise missiles led to controversy over the number of civilians death caused. In the first 24 hours of war, more than a, th- a thousand uh, sorties were flown, mainly against targets in Baghdad, which led to a lot of civilian casualties. Uh, one incident involved the USAF stealth planes bombing a bunker in Amiria, resulting in the death of 408 Iraqi civilians in shelters. Saddam claimed that around 2,300 civilians had died during the campaign. And according to the Project of Defense Alternative, 3,664 Iraqi civilians were killed in the conflict. After the war, during the nationwide uprisings against the Ba'athi government, an estimated 25,000 to 100,000 Iraqis, mostly civilians, were killed. A Harvard study predicted that tens and thousands of additional Iraqi deaths would occur by the end of 1991 due to the country's, like the destruction of the country's electrical grid. And also the bombing of hospitals and other facilities in Iraq that was bombed during the air raids. In March 1991, the United Nations reported a report described that the bombing campaign led by the U.S. as having a devastating effect on Iraqis, bringing the country back to a pre-industrial age. 
The exact number of Iraq combat casualties is not known, but it's believed that it has been heavy and estimated range from 20,000 to 35,000 fatalities. It seems like the Iraq from 80 till 91 was, was being like fought. Saddam properly destroyed the Iraq. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in all sorts of ways. And now we need to talk about the sanctions. So, of course, the one big effect of the war is the sanctions on Iraq. That stayed from all the way through the 90s all the way to 2003. Uh, although the sanctions imposed on Iraq did not immediately lead to catastrophic consequences, the government had implemented a rationing system. So the best, best thing that Iraq did, that Saddam did, was he invented something, a rationing system. The government rationed foods for civilians and were able to take measures to increase agriculture by subsidizing a lot. However, the bombing campaign during the Persian Gulf War caused significant destruction to Iraq's infrastructure, leading to a near near apocalyptic situation for the next 12 years when the section was uh, imposed it had hindered the efforts of iraq and the united un agencies like unicef fao and who in restoring electricity transportation healthcare and food security they could never fix it in addition to the sanctions there was an enforcement of a no-fly zone which was implemented by the united states britain and france you know it's like you know in um that joke, that meme with Harry Potter was like, why is there always a promise, always you three? It's yeah. always England, Britain, and France. Yeah. I mean, sorry, England, uh, United States, and France. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the no-fly zone covered more than 40% of Iraq. This would cause like sporadic bombings from the United States and the United Nations on Iraq. Every time they thought that Iraq was doing something, like flying in the no-zone area, they'd bomb the plane. This would keep happening until 2003. Although the United States and its allies sometimes agreed to humanitarian provisions, they would pretty much undermine them. The United States continued imposing the United States and Britain, of course, because this was, keep in mind, this was Clinton and Blair, right? Yeah. Shout out to our center episode, The Third Way. They consistently aimed to maximize the damage done to Iraq by trying to destabilize Saddam Hussein's regime. So they, the more they thought, the more they intensified the sanctions, the more the Iraqis would eventually get rid of Saddam. Saddam. So, of course, no one gets fucked more by sanctions than, than the people. Exactly. For example, Resolution 661 allowed for food to be delivered to Iraq in an event of humanitarian circumstances. Uh, France, Britain, and Canada interpreted this language to mean that there must be irrefutable evidence of famine happening before they could allow food in Iraq. Wow. As a result, no food imports to Iraq were permitted for eight months until the entire country had been reduced to rubble. Uh, when food shipments eventually started to go to Iraq, the United States agreed only to an informal agreement with the members of the Security Councils to look favorably on goods like clothing, agricultural equipment, water sanitation equipment, and educational materials. However, within a few months, the United States again blocked them. Like, nope. The only country that blocked and delayed humanitarians, like we said, was the United States and Britain, right? The United States was responsible for 90 to 90 to 95 percent of all holds of goods that were coming into Iraq, which were often in place where applications were reviewed. Every time they would send food or healthcare, it had to be reviewed because America was worried that it would be given to the military. That excuse, you know? Yeah. Because with the leader of the free world, there's no halfway. Of course, this prevented billions of dollars of urgent goods related to water treatment road repair, electricity, transportation, telecommunications to arriving to Iraq for years. The United States often claimed that these goods were, had been both military and civilian use, making them dual-use items. However, the infrastructure of the civilian economy is also being used as a military, so that's like one, the, the roads are being used by everyone. 
So you're not going to give roads to yeah. medicines were allowed in, but refrigerators or trucks needed in the cold chain were not allowed in. So no chilled reefers. A water treatment plant was allowed, but the generator needed for the plant would be not allowed because it was rational that it, the rationale was that it was used for dual use. You so could have the water treatment, but you can't have the generator. generator. You know what I mean? Uh, nearly all co- computer equipment, including for needed for hospitals and schools, were blocked because it could be used for dual use. A uh, wide range of educational goods, such as medical textbooks and equipment on for teach, teaching science at a secondary school, were considered uh, blocked because it could considered to be these chemicals could be used by the military. Uh, equipment for irrigation, desalination, fertilizer, and pesticides were banned because they could be used by the military. Equipment on dairy products and animal vaccines necessary for raising sheep and goats were blocked and delayed. And in the summer of 2002, professional UN staff took over the process and quickly removed the majority of the holds. They're like, listen, man. It doesn't like, make sense. It doesn't make sense. You're literally like saying, you know, I mean, what are you giving these people? It was continually condemned from human rights organizations. They're like, listen, this is too, like, you're... They you're, went too far. You're going too far, yeah. And... There was, despite calls for reducing humanitarian damage, the United States and Britain went to gl- great lengths to block any reforms. In 1996, a Security Council resolution 1051 provided mechanism for monitoring and exporting these dual-use goods to Iraq, involving an international ac- atomic energy agency that would go with weapon inspectors to make sure these items were not being used by the military. Uh, the United States blocked it, claiming that they presented security risk, and even though the weapons inspectors They're had determined otherwise, for the sake of being yeah. Assholes, yeah, they wanted Saddam out. This is all tactics just to remove him. Uh, in two thousand one, we also have to blame Saddam for not leaving. Yeah, a terrible guy. Um, all this, and he still stays. I mean, he should read the room, right? Yeah. Uh, in two thousand one. George W. Bush's administration sought to deflect criticism while maintaining its core practices. They proposed a goods review list, uh, which would largely reflect the United States' own extreme reviews by adopting the Security Council Committee's overseeing sanctions. Um, the sanctions imposed on Iraq caused widespread malnutrition, hunger, and food insecurities, particularly children, expected mothers, widows, orphans, the sick, and the elderly and disabled. The effects of the ongoing malnutrition especially included on children, especially um, included long-term health problems and cognitive deficits. Uh, The sanctions also resulted in bankrupting the state, hyperinflation and lack of income from oil. Keep in mind, they were not able to sell for oil, right? But they were able to do something called oil for food. We'll sell you oil, in return you give us food. Um, Completely humiliating the country, man. Like, it made it impossible for pe- for people to have livable salaries. This led to massive loss of, of staffing in critical government institutions. Qualified professionals were running away from their countries, resulting to a brain drain. At that time also, Saddam was kind of going through his own problems. Two of his son-in-laws, like the most famous one, Hassan Kemal, they went to, they ran away to Jordan, who was, he was the head of the Iraq's weapons procurement program, which, uh, and he started providing Western intelligence with about Iraqi's weapon systems. Once they bounced, Saddam held a referendum asking if he should remain as president of Iraq. He won by 99.96%. Wow. Mm. So that's why he stayed. I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. People just loved it. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Hassan Kamil and Saddam Kamil sought asylum in the West, like we mentioned, but they were disappointed when they were not accepted by, to the United States. Saddam established contact with them in Jordan and said that he's going to give them a presidential pardon if they returned. And in February 1996, they returned to Iraq with their families. Despite... Uh, Saddam Kamal's objections, 
uh, that they would get killed if they come back. On their return, Saddam forced Hassan Kamal and Saddam Kamal to divorce their wives and strip them of their ranks. See, so now there's conflicting interests, but both of them are kind of like, again, adds to that Saddam gangster mentality. He sent them to their father's villa, okay? And they were given weapons, and they're like, listen, you're going to have to fend for yourself. And Saddam summoned the relatives and associates of the brothers to the presidential palace, and he told them to get rid of them. So they went there. It's like the movie Ready or Not. Exactly, and they had a standoff. With uh, with Saddam's guards, and they were kept shooting at each other until one of them. Like, if they run away, they run away. Exactly. Um, another story goes that they were actually given a car, a jeep full of weapons, and they were told to, in like an old tribal tradition, to escape. And if they could escape, they escape, and they would be chased by the bodyguards, and they would be fought. And apparently, Saddam's uh, son, Oday and Kusay. They were, they were sitting in the bulletproof cars watching all this was happening. It's like entertainment. Gangs- yeah. Like I told you, the gangster motif of the family. The cousins got killed and they, were, they got shot down by Saddam's bodyguards. Um, of course, at that time, America at the same time was trying to find a way to get rid of Saddam because, you know, America can just like, to quote Colin Powell after the first Gulf War, there's no more demons left, you know? Yeah. Saddam was their favorite. He still not being able to remove him. They're like, we'll focus on him, you know? Castro's too impossible to get rid of. Let's focus on Saddam. So John M. Deutsch, or Dutch, was appointed director of the CIA in March 1995. He reviewed the agency's Iraq operation and concluded that it should be made tighter and more focused on the objective of overthrowing Saddam. He was under the pressure from the White House to deliver. Clinton wanted him to deliver before the elections of 1996. So they all wanted the end of Saddam. They tried to get rid of Saddam by using the INC, right? The Iraqi National Congress. Uh, it failed. To that extent, there was a, the guy, Ahmed Chalabi, who we mentioned in the first part, he was, he was running it. Because of the failure, the United States kind of like threw him to the side. Like, listen, we used you, you bombed. It didn't work, yeah. Yeah. So on the recommendation of the British intelligence, they decided to deal with another rival called the, Itali- uh, the, the Iraqi National Accord, INA, which was headed by Dr. Ayad al-Alawi a former Ba'athist who defected from Iraq after falling out with Saddam in the 70s. And they had high-placed contacts inside Iraq, mainly military and senior people in the Ba'ath party. And they were confident that they could arrange a coup inside Iraq, which both appealed to America and the British. So unlike that plan of the 1995, it seemed the United States was more enthusiastic. So unfortunately, um, the, the, the scheme in 1996 to overthrow Saddam was kind of, uh, kind of fell apart. America two times in two years failed to remove Saddam. You can't keep getting away with it! The plotters were all from elite units, such as the Republican Guard, the Special Republican Guard, and the Emergency Forces. A number of them would be eventually arrested, and Saddam and all of them were detained, about 800 suspects, and they were all tortured and executed. So at that point, America was like, okay, listen, um, we failed twice. <laughs> Maybe we should stop, right? Back up, yeah. In August... Of that year, Saddam Hassan's forces reoccupied the Kurdish enclave, which has been used as previous, like for previous assaults on the government. And they were able to destroy the infrastructure of, of the INC in Kurdistan. And the United States had to make hurried arrangements to evacuate more than 6,000 Iraqis and Kurds who were involved in the operation, in the coup operations. At that time, the United States Defense Secretary said that we cannot stay because the United States should not be involved in the civil war between Iraq and Kurdistan. Saddam Hassan's success in foiling these scoop attempts and destroying the INC Probably and the INC. popularity. Exactly. 
and it signaled the end of Clinton's administration effort to overthrow him for the remainder of the 90s. Like we said, 96, Clinton was running up for re-election. He, he already had two bad stains. He didn't want like... Another one. So exactly. Um, so in the spring of 1997, Saddam focused on the remaining issues from the Gulf War. United Nations sanctions and the weapons inspections. The U.S. no longer linked lifting sanctions to the weapons, so he saw there was no benefit of cooperating by lifting by getting rid of his weapons if you're not going to get rid of my sanctions, right? Yeah. He knew that the threat of military force from the United States was declining after the failed two coups uh, by Clinton, and the worst they could do was launch a few missiles at him. He was better protecting his weapons from inspectors. You know, it's like listen, the worst they could do is just bomb me. Yeah. The UNSCOM. Main task was to track the remaining elements of Iraq's biological weapons and X and VX nerve gas programs, right? Mm-hmm. And any missile systems used to deliver them. They were also tasked with investigating claims that Iraq conducted biological weapon experiments on prisoners in Abu Ghraib. Oh wow! Yeah, comes back full circle. Yeah, after being supplied with inf- with information from defectors. They were becoming more confrontational with their work that Saddam was using these weapons on them. Saddam respond, responded with a more defiant attitude that one of their helicopters would crash during an inspection and blacking out their cameras at sensitive sites. And Saddam declared that some sites were immune from inspections and demanded that the United Nations lift the sanctions imposed on Iraq if they wanted to visit these sections. He also intensified on the weapons inspector arguing that they had been infiltrated by the CIA and the Western intelligence and announced that no more Americans would be allowed to enter with the United Nations weapon inspectors. And a few days later, all the Americans were expelled. The Clinton administration responded by threatening to bomb Iraq and, and Saddam decided to back down. At that time, the United States had little international support from the world for like having any military action against uh, Baghdad. And Saddam had invited the foreign press to Baghdad to report on the, the devastating effects of the sanctions on him. The profound impact on the public opinion was growing. The people wanted it off, like they wanted to stop um, the United Nations sanction. But within Iraq, they noticed that the regime was earning billions of dollars from the black market because he was still bringing in stuff from down under, especially the people within Saddam. Yeah, from yeah, he was bringing things from Australia. Uh, in 1998, Kufi Annan visited Baghdad to defuse the situation with the weapons inspector. The key issue was the demand by Richard Butler was to inspect the so-called presidential site. So Saddam had concealed equipment that they weren't allowed to look at. Annan met with Saddam for three hours and they agreed to a formula to resolve the crisis. Saddam objected to the word of inspect- inspections and said that it should be referred to as visits. It would be weapons visits. Instead, uh, Anan said it would be too vague, so Saddam agreed that the inspectors could enter the sites, and they drafted a phrase that it was initial and subsequent entries of, for performance of tasks mandated. It wasn't an inspection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saddam agreed to the amended text in exchange for a commitment of Anan to lift the sanctions of Iraq if they complete, completely complied with the inspections. And, uh, Saddam thanked him for visiting Baghdad and said that he should come for holiday if he wouldn't be embarrassed. Uh, 1998, the United States Congress passed the Iraqi Liberation Act, pledging $97 million to Iraqi opposition groups to overthrow Saddam. In November, Saddam suspended all cooperation with the United Nations Weapons Inspector Program. Um, Saddam eventually allowed the inspectors back, but then they reported he was not fulfilling his United Nations commitment. Kofi Annan concluded that both Clinton administration and Saddam were intent on bombing each other, and they were both not helping the situation. On December 17, 1998, the U.S. and Britain launched Operation Desert Fox, which was conducted on 400 bombing missions against targets that 
the weapon expected had been prevented from visiting. So it tells you that Iraq, America has been clear. It's been bombing Iraq ever since 1991. 2003 was just another phase of the war. It was war. a continuous war. It was war. a continuous it war. It wasn't two wars, yeah. Yeah. The Gulf, first Gulf War never ended. Exactly. He, they bombed the sites. Clinton claimed the mission was accomplished. Saddam, of course, used this opportunity to show that, like, look at the United States the, launching an attack against my people. Uh, it was criticized by France, Russia, China, and much of the Arab world. The United Nations Security Council was also divided about this, uh, about the future of the weapons inspection. The only policy left for U.S. and Britain was to maintain the United Nations sanction, uh, sanctions. Uh, the only thing was allowed was oil for food. You know, they imposed new sanctions. However, the UNICEF survey in 1998 showed that a quarter of the Iraqi soldiers were unmalnourished, and one in ten were acutely malnourished, right? And the public opinion in the, in the West held the UN sanctions uh, responsible. Dennis Halliday, United Nations appointed supervisor for the oil food program, resigned at the end of 1998, claiming that the policy caused thousands of children to die every month due to the impact of these sanctions. Even the guy who was the head of the appointed supervisor of the sanctions was like, listen, the sanctions not it's working. too much, yeah. After three and a half years since the inspectors left Baghdad and the U.S. launched Desert Fox, Iraq experienced a significant change. Despite the sanctions, most Arab countries started to ignore them and start engaging trade with Iraq. Uh, Saddam's international airport received regular flights from Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. It was adorned with down with America slogans when you enter huh. the airport. The, so dam- <laughs> the anti-America rhetoric yeah. that left, yeah. The, damage, the damages caused by 1991 were rebuilt. Baghdad's buildings, bridges, and roads were restored. Uh, the United Nations Oil for Food Program and Saddam's illicit oil smuggling from, da- from underground activities generated, for, and generated foreign currency earnings. They started paying. This is when he started paying in different currencies. Yeah, the gold standard and all. The euro and whatnot. And bringing back signs of prosperity into Baghdad. Despite the fact that Iraq's economy was uh, was thriving and the people were kind of enjoying a higher living standard, first time they witnessed it in the beginning of the decade, Saddam was still able to ample funds to finance his extravagant projects. He built uh, Umm al-Ma'arik Mosque, the mother of all battles mosque, which the Menorat looks like missiles, if you look at them. Yeah. <laughs> and during that period, Saddam kept dyeing his hair black, started wearing suits instead of his military attire, trying to revamp his look to the people. Saddam worked for long hours and he would start to steal short naps to refresh himself throughout the day. He was a fan of reading books and Arab military history, you know, watching CNN, Al Jazeera and BBC. He was a fan of <laughs> thrillers, anything that involved assassinations, conspiracy. One of his favorite movies we mentioned was Godfather, The Conversation and The Day of the Jackal. Classics. Yeah, he has good movie taste. Saddam also had, a, he had 20 palaces around Iraq. So clearly he was living the high life during those periods, you know what I mean? So Iraq was kind of moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Clinton, when he went into office in June 1993, he, he bombed Iraq five months into his presidency. Because apparently there was like a, like a misconception that Saddam Hussein tried to assassinate George H.W. Bush. Yeah. None of it was true. There was no evidence that he did. No one ever reported that. Apparently, it became clear that Kuwait have cooked the books and have pretended that this uh, report came out. That Saddam Probably was from the same company. Maybe. Uh, Knowles and what's it called? We're now in the 2000s, right? Uh, Saddam Hussein now has revived Iraq to some somewhat of a decent state. America is still imposing sanctions. They're still trying to find ways to overthrow him. It's proven to be quite durable. Though. Yeah. He weathered the storm. Iraq was being bombed by the United States once every three days under Clinton. Uh, it was the longest sustained U.S. 
bombing campaigns is Vietnam. The cruel reality is, and I quote, uh, the cruel reality is that people are dying as a result of these no-fly zones. Every time something would happen, it's just a bomb after a bomb. About 500,000 Iraqi civilians would die during the Clinton's time in office because of these United Nations sanctions. For the next episode, following the coup, we're going to talk about Ahmed Chalabi because he's going to play a big role in George W. Bush and what happened after. So after, like we said, in 1958, when the coup took over, the Chalabi family were thrown into chaos. They, were, they fled to different countries and Ahmed Chalabi would continue studying in the United States and he would eventually open a successful bank in Jordan, right? Called the Petra Bank. But once it became clear that the bank was being fraudulent during a financial and currency crisis in the 1980s in Jordan and that the bank was, able, was unable to comply with the central bank demand of, uh, demand of depositing 35% of the holdings, he ran away. There was an open case for him but uh, he never came back. He fled to Britain, and then from Britain, he stayed Switzerland as well, as well, I think. He was sentenced to 22 year hard labor in abstentia. Two Swiss-based financial institutions run by the Salabi fam uh, family were also shut down by the Swiss authorities for being fraudulent. And they continued to maintain their innocence, and they said it was all a ploy by Saddam Hussein to get them back. Salabi's banking career ended disastrously at the same time the Gulf crisis was deepening. Saddam Hussein's regime was weakened after 1991 but remained in power, angering some U.S. political elements like we mentioned. Salabi saw it as an opportunity to become a pro-American democratic Iraqi opposition. Option. Yeah. Come back. Um, he, he, was, he befriended people in the higher-ups, such as Richard Perel, a leading new conservative during the 1985 trip to the U.S., and gained some support from powerful figures such as Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney. Two, two of these three people play a big role in worst, 2003. The worst people in the world. Uh, like we said, Chalabi was also a part of the Iraqi National Congress, which was sponsored by the, United, by the CIA uh, to get rid of Saddam in 1995, but that backfired. In 1998, Congress passed the, the Liberation Act, like we said, was paying $97 million. That went mostly to Shalabi to fund his uh, coup against Saddam. An official audit in 2001 revealed that due to the misuse of funds, it was halted and the White House had to intervene to take the money back from him. Shalabi's political prospects were revitalized with the ascension of a president in 2000, George the Bush w. administration. Bush where two of the three people he made friends with introduced him to George Bush. The corrupt and unsavory element within the Bush administration found in Chalabi a political ally who shared their outlook. With Chalabi's close association to power of Washington, they began to exert a glowing influence on the U.S. foreign policy. And this will all come ahead on September 11, 2001. And that's where we're going to close off for today. To be continued. To be continued to the last part, and I guess the main crux of this whole story the 2003 war. war on Iraq. Anyways, AIM, it's been a long one. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up quickly. What do you have to say about dictators of countries like Indonesia, who we sell weapons to, yet they are slaughtering people in East Timor? What do you have to say about Israel, who is slaughtering Palestinians, who impose martial law? What do you have to say about that? Those are our allies. Why do we sell weapons to these countries? Why do we support them? Why do we bomb Iraq when it commits similar problems? The, uh, there are various examples of things that are not right in this world, and the United States is trying... <laughs> I uh, really am 
surprised that people feel that it is necessary to defend the rights of Saddam Hussein when what we ought to be thinking about is how to make sure that he does not use weapons of mass destruction. I'd like to... I'm not defending him in the least. What I am saying is that there needs to be consistent application of U.S. foreign policy. We cannot support people who are committing the same violations because they are political allies. That is not acceptable. We cannot via violate U.N. resolutions when it is convenient to us. We You're not, not answering my question, Madam Albright. <laughs> Ah, uh, 